You're only hearing me, but you will get to hear a Jay shortly. This will be the first of a two-part episode with my friend and Civic Digital Fellowship alumnus, Vinesh Kanan. Vinesh has done some fantastic work in the civic tech space for the Bureau of Labor Statistics and on the local scene with Chai Hack Knight and at Illinois Tech, which we will get to discuss in part two. However, for those of you who do not already know, Vinesh recently resigned from his position as a software engineer at Google Shopping due to Google's treatment of AI ethics researcher, Dr. Timnit Gebru, and former Google recruiter, April Curley. Ajay and I had to do a fair amount of preparation for this conversation. Ajay took sole responsibility for the line of questioning regarding Google here. Now, I served as a mere spectator to this discussion, and I do not want to give away too many spoilers. However, I'd like to say that many of the things I read in our research for this episode, as well as the discussion between Ajay and Vinesh were quite upsetting. As someone who values ethical technology and is aware of technology's impact on marginalized communities, the actions that Google took mentioned throughout this episode were unconscionable. I do not want to focus too much on the negatives here because there are quite a few insights that our listeners will find valuable and hopefully will reflect upon at their place of work, wherever that may be. Additionally, for anyone working on the tech policy side of things, I sincerely hope that this discussion gives you additional just cause to look into Google and other big tech companies' actions to silence the voices advocating for more equitable technology. But that's enough for me. I leave you now in the hands of my friends Ajay Jane and Vinesh Kanan. Hey, Evan. Hey, Ajay. Great to see you guys. Uh, thank you for coming on, Vinesh. I'm going to go ahead and start things off here about a little bit of background as to why you resigned from Google just a few weeks ago. As a lot of you might have seen, Vinesh Cannon was a software engineer at Google who resigned as a result of the mistreatment of two employees at Google, April Curley and Timnit Gebru. More specifically, we're going to talk about Timnit Gebru in the podcast specifically. She was fired from Google after refusing to retract an artificial intelligence research paper. According to the MIT Technology Review, Dr. Gebru is a renowned artificial intelligence ethics researcher. Among her list of research publications includes a, quote, groundbreaking paper that exemplifies how facial recognition algorithms accidentally discriminate against women and non-white individuals due to their low accuracy rates for detecting them. While at Google, Dr. Gabru had written a paper during her time called On the Dangers of Stochastic Parrots, Can Language Models Be Too Big? The paper does a deep dive supported by 128 references, claiming that despite their increasing popularity, as said by the MIT Technology Review, we must explore both the risks and the potential negative societal implications and how we can curb them. These include the energy costs for training and utilizing artificial intelligence language models, complications behind AI models to adapt to, quote, new anti-sexist and anti-racist vocabulary from the Black Lives Matter movements and the Me Too movement, the inability to monitor these models for biases against marginalized groups, and ease to not only fool people, but also to spread misinformation. If these tools are in the wrong hands, they can be, quote, used to generate misinformation about an election or about the COVID-19 pandemic. 
I want to dive right into her first couple of questions right here, Vinesh. Why was Dr. Gabru writing this paper and what was she trying to accomplish with this paper? I, you know, I can't speak for what Dr. Gabru and her team were hoping to do, but I can tell you why it was meaningful to me. And, and I hope to us who are in the, the Civic Digital Fellowship, as well as the broader civic tech community, lots of organizations are using machine learning and AI. Lots of government agencies are using it. All three of us and many of our friends and colleagues have worked on those systems. And so it's extremely important to us to know that they're going to be safe, equitable, ethical. And what Dr. Gabru and her co-authors are doing is coalescing lots of the biggest risks and making them clear. Because I think in the AI field, there's a tendency to view those risks as someone else's problem or a minor component and not a widespread issue. And so to have someone as well-regarded as Dr. Gabru and her collaborators highlight this problem in an important academic venue, and to see that this sort of research is being supported at Google is, is a big deal for lots of people in the space, and especially us, like young career people, students, to know that these things are dangers, they matter, and it's our responsibility to fix them. But instead, Google has done the exact opposite, which is inflict trauma on Dr. Gabru, her team, external collaborators who don't even work at Google, strip them of their positions, the managers who support them, and make clear to everyone that they have no interest in addressing these problems. If none of this happened, it would be harder to tell, right? Like Google can support this kind of research, but still not take material actions to ensure the development of ethical AI. But like now we know. The conflict over what the paper was about and how it led to Dr. Gabru being fired is so petty. The idea that Jeff Dean and Google Research would use multiple channels to insinuate that it was not a high quality piece of research, that it, it didn't have enough citations, that it needed to make the case that the entire field has been making that AI has a positive impact is a ridiculous smear campaign against extremely important researchers. Yeah, and kind of building off what you just said, because I thought it was really interesting when you were claiming that Google doesn't really want to take responsibility for the problems that their models are creating. I got to work a little bit on the policy side and see firsthand how technological policy is kind of thought of. I spent a semester in Washington, D.C. as a congressional intern, and I got to attend multiple briefings and meetings held by interest groups and hosted by members of Congress about the downsides to these buzzword technologies. And these meetings range from, you know, data regulation, legislation to policies combating artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithm biases in the banking industry. My question here is, is there a reason why big tech companies like Google do not want to question the societal effects of their products while the government and our constituents are left to worry. It's frustrating because a lot of a lot of people at big technology companies do. Lots of lots of tech employees care about these problems, but we need to see them also care about protecting researchers and protecting marginalized people in the space. And that's why we actually can't separate what happened to April Curley either, because April's work made Google a hundred times, a thousand times better at recruiting students from HBCUs. 
and also passed a lot of those benefits to other students that had negative experiences recruiting. Not only did Google say we're not going to reward April for the work that she did that helps the company, helps the students, but we're going to stay silent while her coworkers treat her horribly and we're eventually going to dismiss her. Those are intertwined. But then there's another piece where a lot of a lot of people that I've met in the space believe that they're working on ethical AI and they believe that ethical AI is consistent with whatever the incentives of a company like Google is. They, they think that it should be possible to stay that line of being a, a for-profit company developing machine learning technology and then being ethical. And unfortunately, there's a lot of like lazy explanations for what being ethical is. People will say like harm reduction or not causing problems, but only causing benefits. What we run into a lot of times is like a, a risk calcul- a risk analysis where in their head or officially on like design documents, engineers are being asked to lay out what they think the costs and benefits are. And then if they don't, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll compute the costs and benefits in a way that reflects positively on their, their project. And it's tough when you, you hear about like, well, large language models are going to contain racist, sexist, ableist biases. If that doesn't factor into your risk analysis, then you're misleading people about what the true harm and benefit of a technology is. And unfortunately, the larger the company is, they can use their scale to mask the harm and overplay the benefit. Like they can say, this is going to provide the ability for hundreds of millions of people to book restaurant visits from their phone by voice. Uh, what's, what, have we dug into the harms? Like what does that do to users whose voice won't be recognized by that virtual assistant? For that matter, what does it do to the restaurants that are receiving the bookings and possibly being flooded by tons of essentially robocalls? The risk analysis requires you to lay out all of the groups that will be affected, how it will affect them, and whether that weighs against your benefit that you're getting from launching this thing, which is revenue, usage, metrics, press. And engineers like us, no matter how well-intentioned we are, launch these projects and then the risk that other people warned us about or would have predicted comes to pass, we have just told them which groups we ignored in our calculation of the harms and benefits. And that, that is just the clearest way to say that you don't care about a certain group of people, a certain harm, a certain impact, and that you're letting the benefit to you or your perceived benefit of this to society hide the harms. So would you say that this whole risk analysis thing that is done by technologists like you and I at big tech companies leads to a lot of confirmation bias? Sometimes it feels like that. I can, you know, I can only speak to my direct experience. When I was working at Google, I volunteered on a project about the, the Black-owned attribute in shopping. And the idea was this was something that like Google Maps and Google Shopping were working on to hi- highlight whether a business was Black-owned. And obviously, it's just a very nuanced definition of like what whether a business is Black-owned. And some people will disagree or agree over that. But the motivation for the project was like consumers want to support Black-owned businesses. 
Let's make it easier for them to do. This is like a classic, like Google design philosophy right. was like, if we want people to be able to do something, let's make it really easy. Let's use data to surface those things. And so when we were working on the risk analysis for the project, I worked with a lot of people at Google that spend a lot of time working with black owned businesses, spend a lot of time thinking about how to build inclusive products, how to mitigate harm to marginalized community. And I myself also did a lot of user interviews with uh, people who run black owned businesses or, or work with them to understand the risks. And so it became you know, immediately obvious that in the process of making something like this easier for consumers who want to support black owned businesses, it also becomes easier for harassers that want to track them down and leave bad reviews, spam them with orders that they're going to return, add them to, to lists for other people to go and multiply that harassment. And so when we're doing the, the risk analysis for this, every team does their own risk analysis. So like the team on the Google Maps side did their risk analysis, the team on, on the Google Shopping side, we did our risk analysis. And so it's, it's, it's kind of like a spreadsheet where you list every row is like a risk that you think is gonna happen, then how likely you think that's gonna happen, how big the effect is, and then finally the risk score. And so then you sort everything. I'm glad that I got to to work on this because it was a it was a kind of like work that I could do that I I don't get to do in my normal engineering work. Like rather than coding, I have to go be researching different types of risks, interviewing actual people to hear what they worry about, and then making this really like high stakes calculation because that's what that's what my project manager, my vice president, or anyone else in the project is going to look at and decide, do we still feel good about doing this? I learned a lot of like really horrible stuff that people are doing to black owned businesses that shook my faith in whether or not Google should be launching this. And it's tough because everybody they worked with on that project also cares about the health of black owned businesses. And a driving motivation for the project is black owned businesses are shuttering at much higher rates than than white-owned businesses because of COVID. And so it's like, we want to use Google's power to help them. And so then, you know, since the launch, sure enough, like the risks that we predicted come to pass. Businesses get harassed. You'll, you'll see people leaving hateful, obviously fake reviews. If you click on that user's profile, you'll, you'll see that they have been doing that to lots of other Black-owned businesses. The different teams at Google that work on this have put in various mitigations. Like they'll they'll automatically lock accounts when stuff like this is reported. They'll try to, to mitigate this harm, but the harm is happening in the first place because Google accelerated. And then the other thing is like the, the people who work on trust and safety and work on these sorts of issues sometimes have very thick skins about this because they're seeing they're seeing the underbelly of of digital products. Like the, the utopian vision of like, of big tech products that is sold to consumers and to engineers and to students, people who work in trust and safety see all the ways that those are used by like harassers and abusers and to, to cause harm. And they do the clerical task of, of calculating how often is this happening? What harm does that cost us? And is the cost benefit analysis still worth it? And you don't get to see that decision-making process, but you see the result, which is this, this feature is still live. So the powers that be at Google have decided that 
even though these horrible things are happening to small businesses, it's, it's happening to only a few or in certain areas, or we have appropriate mitigations. And Google uses the scale at which to say, hey, why are you focusing on this many businesses that are being harassed when a thousand times or 10,000 times more are getting some benefit? So that, that kind of like thinking, which is very utilitarian and also rests on the belief of students, engineers, policymakers, consumers, that technology is generally good and not bad, really pervades tech. Yeah, I completely agree. And I saw the exact same thing when I was working at Facebook. Everyone at Facebook is like, oh, we're working on this social media tool that connects people. And as a result, we're all working on good tools. It's something that after I left the company at the end of my internship in the summer of 2019, that's kind of gone the other way. When the Capitol insurrection happened last month, Mark Zuckerberg actually silenced a bunch of employees who were speaking out on the internal workplace platform, which for our listeners who don't know what workplace is, it's essentially Facebook's internal Facebook. It's Facebook's Facebook. And a lot of employees were trying to talk about the insurrection and how Facebook was responsible. On top of that, how software engineers at Facebook were responsible for causing an insurrection to be formed and potentially affecting the lives of our politicians. Mark Zuckerberg silenced them. A lot of people at Facebook still believe that the products that they work on are positive societal impacting products. I I know a couple of employees at Facebook, and I know this is a common mentality at Facebook, where, quote, the invasion of privacy in order to create a better product is better than not having a, a product like Facebook at all. In order to have a better product, a company like Facebook should invade someone's personal privacy. And it's really tough trying to debate the other way, where it's like, you know what, we also have to look at the downsides of the products that we're making, especially in terms of the spread of misinformation and the spread of harassment, because otherwise we're going to have these societal problems where, you know, COVID-19 misinformation is spread, where fake news misinformation is spread, where we're getting harassment that's targeted towards Black businesses. And it is very tough seeing people in tech not want to curb these problems because it hurts their own egos. It's really tough to argue against these different rationalizations. I heard that phrase first when April Wenzel, who runs Compassionate Coding, wrote a blog article that has since been taken down about like rationalizations for unethical behavior in tech. It's stuff exactly like what you pointed out, like a a little bit of harm is worth this benefit that we're going to make a better product. Other rationalizations that she lists are like, oh, everybody is doing it or, hey, I'm a good person. I would never do something bad or it's not really hurting anyone or don't worry, we would only do it if the situation was really bad. So th- these, these rationalizations are, are pervasive and by and large, the people that work at these companies will believe them because that's, that's part of what helps retain the confidence that we're doing the right thing. And there's some value to, like, to pointing those out if like me, you are in a position of safety where you feel that you can talk to co- your immediate coworkers and say, hey, I think you're using this rationalization. If you, if you look a little deeper, there's this, there's this thing that we see like in the impact that disproves that rationalization. Those can be productive conversations. Those don't fix everything. That doesn't provide immediate or direct relief to people that are being harmed by the technology or by the business. And even if you defeat the, the rationalization is really hard to unpack because we all carry other rationalizations of being in like an industrialized capitalist society, which is like, we assume that if this company is doing well, 
it must be good, right? There's a really great essay paper. It's actually like a qualitative research paper from Data and Society about like the the logics of ethical tech organizations, and they list out three things that kind of underpin why people who care about ethics at big technology companies believe that they're doing the right thing. And the the three things that they identified were one meritocracy, two markets, and three techno-solutionism. So the first one, meritocracy, is the belief that the best people are hired to work on these tech solutions. And because they're the best, they must be making the best solutions. The second is market fundamentalism, which is the idea that if a company or an organization or a product were really doing something bad, they wouldn't succeed in the market. People would stop using them. They would not be able to charge prices. Then the third piece is uh, what's called techno-solutionism, which is the belief that either social problems can be solved with technology or that social problems are someone else's responsibility other than like the technology. I encountered all of those things at, at Google. And especially the piece about market fundamentalism is a, is a clear piece for a lot of people. They're like, I'm being paid well at this job. The company is succeeding. Lots of people love our products. When regulators come after our company for doing bad things, nothing happens, which reinforces the company's perspective that it's some kind of witch hunt or uh, the company has been following the laws. Knowing, of course, that it's possible to follow laws and still be unethical, that underpins the rationalizations for harmful and unethical tech because we are all people that need to, at some level, like keep our jobs or like be secure, be safe. And unpacking what your company or your organization is doing that's unethical when you believe you're a good person is hard because it, it dares you to confront some of those things. It was easier for me to like confront those things because I had lots of people that were really supportive, especially from the coding it forward community. Like lots of my classmates and friends and even mentors are understanding of these things. And I think that's why I'm really grateful to like have those, those values, but not all students get those. Like sometimes students have mentors or recruiters, even professors or classmates, parents, all kinds of influences that, that, that actually push them to the rationalization that says like, you're not a successful computer science student unless you work for one of these companies or unless your company makes, has this many users or makes this much revenue or, or gets shown in the press this much. And so it's really hard to break out of that culture, especially if you are in an unsafe position where you feel like you can't speak up about these things at the company, where you, your family, your other obligations are like in financial jeopardy. And, and so having a job that pays really well is, is crucial. Those are really hard. I am privileged that that was not the case for me. And so two things that helped me was having my own like red lines that I wrote down before I started the job that like if, if Google as a company crosses this red line, I have to do something, not necessarily leave, but that was the situation with like the, the way that Google mistreated Dr. Gebru and April, it was really clear that the company had no interest in doing even the smallest, most basic things to make amends. And so that's why when that red line was crossed, I realized I had to leave. And luckily I was in a position where I could 
start my job search and try to find some other role that would be better. Engaging with the red lines is hard too because sometimes you want to sometimes you want to cross it, right? Like especially if if you think like oh, staying in a place like Google or to your point, J Facebook would be good for my career, like maybe I'll have an impact, maybe I'll have a chance to work on one of these systems that's used by so many people and and make it better or learn the things that I need to know so that I don't repeat those mistakes in the future or get to work on a new product area of the company where I can do something really good. A lot of my colleagues, I think, have that sort of thinking. And for me, it's just not satisfying anymore. It's like knowing that even if you achieve good things at a company like Google in your work, that it's being overseen by leaders who would do, who would traumatize people like Dr. Gibru and April in this way, who are using their financial and political power to achieve goals that are, that are oppositional to the product impact that you want to have. And that then require you to also at some level stand up and defend the company um, and say like, yeah, I think it's still a good thing to work at this company. Everyone will draw their lines in different places and everyone will weigh what they think is the positive impact of their work on their own lives and on others differently. But for me, that's where I drew it. I think your point was really good about drawing those lines specifically. And that was something that I was thinking about too, while I was working at Facebook in the event that I got a full-time offer and I'd considered accepting it. For me, it was even like little things. It was like, I refused to work at Facebook because I knew what the problems that they were working on, unless it was for a specific team. And I had made that clear to recruiters and to my boss that if I got an offer from Facebook and I wasn't placed with a political team, then I would leave the company even you know after the matchmaking process. Another point that you had brought up that I thought was completely accurate was about how different software engineers feel like that they aren't respected or they can't respect themselves unless they are working at certain companies. I knew a person at the University of Illinois who literally when he was an intern at Amazon saw other teammates of his crying because of how bad the toxic culture is at Amazon and still went back there full time because he felt like he would not be respected as an individual unless he went back to Amazon, unless he went back to a big four company. And I think that this kind of just plays into this whole like toxic boys club culture where you kind of have to like shut up and play with the status quo or else you're going to get harmed specifically or you think that your career is going to get harmed specifically. Thankfully, you were in a lucky position where you felt like you could speak up to the culture. But I'm really curious at Google, did other people, and I guess specifically on the AI team, was this a thing where if you spoke up against the status quo, you, could, you were at risk for losing your job? There's a lot of people at Google that speak up. And like I said, that I'm in a really safe position and have privilege in a lot of different ways. And I'm continually impressed and a little mortified that it's frequently people with less privilege that speak up more and louder and more frequently. You know that I wasn't on the AI team. I worked in Google Shopping. And so I am not privy to all of the conversations that happened within the ethical AI team. The information that we had internally at Google about what was happening there pretty much similar to the information that was like publicly made available. But I think you can see from what members of the ethical AI team have spoken out about publicly that the reality is even worse. Like the way that they have been gaslit and marginalized and mistreated and disrespected goes even deeper than what you might grok just from what was in the news it's also about like the culture of the organization 
one of the reasons that I wanted to come to Google was I thought Google had this culture of engineers will speak up when they think something is wrong and then work to make it better. I, like, I'm not wrong about that. Like Google, Google advertises that this is a part of Google's ethos for years. And it is part of what makes Google supposed to be different from other technology companies. And it's, it's transparently clear that that's no longer the case that executives and even like senior engineers or researchers can bully other people in the org and weaponize HR processes, academic thought, even the press to attack their teammates who speak up about the dangers of the technology, the culture, the company. That was a big motivation to, to come to Google and it's, it's, it has just been proved to be completely untrue. And so that's where you go from a company that cares about having marginalized voices, having people that can blow the whistle or give early warnings about when things are going off the rails so that the company can fix it, make it better. That requires protecting those people and taking meaningful action based on what they say. And I hope that everyone is seeing that Google is doing the exact opposite. There's a lot of students who, to your point, like they feel that they won't be taken seriously as technologists if they don't work at one of these companies. Uh, you know, unfortunately, like those of us who are like, whether you're an upperclassman to your underclassman and you're in a safe position to do this, or whether you're an early career person that's working for another organization, public sector, private sector, please do your best to change that stigma. Tell your underclassmen, tell your interns, tell your new hires that they are talented engineers and researchers. And when they do something that shows that talent highlighted, instead of leaving it up to these signals that are now starting to turn backwards about different organizations. And it's, and it's tough because it's, it's, it's not just that we have to look out for the self-confidence of our friends and teammates, but in some cases, like their family members. Like this is always a, a difficult thing to talk about is friends who have decided to issue offers from big tech companies hear about it nonstop from, from their parents or parent. That is a tough and very personal hill to, to get over. That's a real factor. Maybe it's because most of us are students or early career people that we're, we're focusing on this thing, but then in it, like very quickly it becomes high stakes because then the, the decision of like who is a good engineer, a good researcher, affects who gets promoted and who gets certain projects or who gets certain jobs. That's another area that I think Google has a horrible track record in. Lots of people that do really great work are not being recognized for that. Even within big tech companies are being passed up for promotion or when they do choose to speak out and say something, then all of a sudden they come back in the next quarter, HR tells them, hey, this last quarter you had you know, bad performance. We need to put you on a performance improvement plan or something. Uh, it's what a lot of people call managing someone out. An employee who has glowing track record of high performance tries to speak out about something that's a, 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 an ethical issue in the workplace, whether with the product or with the treatment of people on the team or the business. And then all of a sudden they're, they're told that they're not up to standards and life becomes miserable for them they may get pushed out of the role that, that they, they love and do a great job. That happens to way more people than we know about 
like as students, like we don't, we usually don't hear about that stuff, but it's everywhere. People are getting a lens into the way that performance and HR can be weaponized through what's happening to Dr. Gabru and to April and to so many other people that have come forward to tell the stories of, of how this is happening. Yeah. And your reasoning for wanting to go to Google was the exact reasoning that I had for wanting to go to Facebook. It was pretty twofold. You know, I thought Facebook was a place where I could work on making politics more open, making elections more open, re reducing the misinformation that appears on social media. But also for more of like a computer science major standpoint, I thought that working at Facebook would make me more respected amongst my peers. And in the end, I realized that that wasn't the respect that I was trying to earn specifically. The second thing that I really want to bring up is that you had really mentioned this whole thing about, you know, kind of aligning with the status quo, especially with like getting promoted and stuff like that, where Dr. Gabru didn't align with the status quo that Jeff Dean had implemented on the AI team at Google. And as a result, she was fired from the company. And something similar had happened to me when I was at Facebook. There is this culture at Facebook. I don't know if this really exists at Google. It might be team dependent like it was with Jeff Dean, but if you are an intern and you ask too many questions, or if you are a software engineer and you ask too many questions, it significantly hurts you in the in the midpoint review process and at the final review process as an intern and during the biannual review processes as a full-time software engineer. So for example, my manager had said, you know, Ajay, you can ask as many questions as you want as so you can grow as a coder. And I took complete full advantage of that. When it came to the midpoint review process, I was told that I asked too many questions and that I was seen as dependent. And that's something that is really bad because as engineers, we should be able to ask questions about the products that we are developing, not just in terms of coming up with the best engineering practices to solve the problems, but also just to determine what are the societal implications of what we're developing specifically. And that's something that doesn't exist in government. That's something that doesn't exist when you're working in civic technology, because you are expected to ask as many questions as you can. You're expected to talk to your users specifically so you can understand what your users want. At Facebook and at Google, especially at Facebook, you are so far away from your users. You know, you don't know what line of code you're going to be writing, how that's going to affect someone in Egypt who's talking about their oppressive government, how that's going to affect someone in Myanmar with the coup that's going on right now. You're so far away and you're in this, you know, big office headquarter of privilege where you don't see what code you're writing is affecting someone halfway across the globe you're essentially just supposed to just shut up and code. You're supposed to move fast and break things at Facebook and probably at Google as well. But this slogan fails when you can't ask questions about the risks that your products have, let alone the best way to come up and create them. And that's why I had a very bad time at Facebook because I could never wrap my head around that. My boss knew that I wanted to go into political tech. He knew that I wanted to go work on a political campaign during 2020, which I thankfully did. That didn't align with the mission of Facebook. And that led to a lot of issues. And this also led to some very weird moments for me at Facebook specifically. I want to play this clip. So this clip is of Mark Zuckerberg talking about then presidential candidate, Senator Elizabeth Warren during the 2020 election cycle. And this clip was from the summer of 2019. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies, um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So does that still suck for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to, you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. But, but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the map and you fight. This is something that I think about a lot, which is if you're a company that's the size of Google or Facebook, 
probably the biggest risk is not that you're going to lose some revenue or even that you're going to lose a particularly talented employee or that one product launch is going to go poorly. The existential risk is that no matter how well your company is doing by traditional metrics, one law could be passed that makes your business no longer profitable to the degree that it was before. And so that's, that's where companies will put their resources to fight against. We're seeing that play out with, you know, with, with the, the way Facebook is handling the situation in Australia with the negotiations with the government over how to handle news. We saw that play out in the election when Uber and other gig companies essentially bought Prop 22. It's a really challenging environment for people that are in our, our civic tech community where we care about government and we care about technology. There are a lot of entanglements. Like, first of all, we have friends and colleagues that work at these companies and are convincing us that they're working on good things. Or these companies may even have funded things that we care about, things that we relied on. Some of my friends have had like tuition scholarships funded by Google. Google funded so many programs that were useful to me. And then a lot of people that, that work in government, like learned their ideas of technology or engineering from places like Google. Some, like some of, the, some of the foremost civic technologists came from Google and other Silicon Valley tech companies. And so that's like entangled with, with the culture and the ways of operating. And then just simply like dwarfing all of those factors is just the fact that, that Google, Facebook, and these other companies are huge companies in terms of their monetary value that changes the regulatory calculus. I'm not a, an expert on any legal matters of this. It's a really challenging thing for civic tech, civic technologists and students that are in this area to think about. Yeah, and it's not just the monetary impact as well, but these companies, Facebook and Google, both have massive societal impacts too. And I think that both Facebook and Google are not afraid to restrict information that its users see so that they can benefit. Um, one of the things that we saw with Google, this is written in the book Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, is that Google likes to keep research like Dr. Gabru's internal so that the public does not know about the biases of the products that Google creates. McNeil notes further that this leads to confirmation bias and internal researchers, quote, are more likely to see what they expect to find. And this is kind of something that's very similar at Facebook. The reason why I played that quote for you about what Mark Zuckerberg was saying about Senator Warren was because I was in that meeting when Mark Zuckerberg said that about Elizabeth Warren. And when he first started talking about Senator Warren, the political geek inside of me was like, oh, cool, Mark Zuckerberg is talking about the election. And then it slowly led to me becoming annoyed and angered that Mark Zuckerberg was speaking from a bully pulpit of a company that supports free speech. And he's attacking a candidate. And in, in a way, it almost seemed like that he was targeting Senator Warren and was willing to restrict information that Facebook users saw in order to prevent Senator Warren from both winning the election and from harming Facebook. And then I started looking around the room and people were supporting him. Whether they were like, you know, had smiles on their face, like nodding, like, yeah, yeah, like this is the right thing to do, or just blindly gazing at him like a deer in the headlights. They bought into the status quo and never thought to even question Mark Zuckerberg. And of course, if you do that at Facebook, if you question Mark Zuckerberg himself, like when Facebook employees protested when a coworker committed suicide because the review process was 
so strenuous at Facebook and this coworker was going to get fired. So he killed himself. And when, when Facebook employees were protesting, they were silenced and some of them were fired. When Facebook employees were discussing the implications of their own products on the insurrection at the Capitol last month, that could have caused members of Congress to be assassinated. Mark Zuckerberg silenced them. Essentially, if you work at a company like Facebook and if you're on a team like Jeff Dean's at Google, you either have to go the status quo and don't question the implications of your products on society or you're fired. And it kind of just takes you in like a cult. Yeah, I'm, I'm really sensitive to all of those dangers and uh, malactions by big technology companies. My observation though about what happened to Dr. Jabru, I think it's also important to like to separate those because Google actually shot itself in the foot here. Like Elizabeth Warren herself and a number of others, including my congressman Bill Foster, wrote a letter to Google saying that they they want to do their own investigation and to to know the results of of Google's inquiry into what was done to Dr. Jabru. If there's an existential risk of regulation of your company, why are you firing your top ethicists and attracting that kind of regulatory scrutiny to yourself? There's no 9D chess here. Like it's, it's not like Google is setting up some strategy here that will make the company more existentially safe in the future. They're choosing to traumatize and gaslight the team of people that work on ethical AI. And they would rather do that then stay in good status with regulators. There's probably some buried line of thinking where someone at Google is thinking, ah, you know, no regulator who's out to get Google is going to change their mind just because we treat Dr. Gibru well. But that's still horrid. If, if, if there's any kind of rationalization going like that, it's a horrid line of thinking. If you think about, the, again, just the sheer pettiness over what Dr. Gibru was fired for, is not just the paper, but then the email that she sent to the Google Women and Allies group, uh, the, the Google Brain group, talking about the way that she was being mistreated and suppressed. Over something that tiny and flimsy, Google is willing to traumatize an entire team and attract the attention of people like Elizabeth Warren, Bill Foster, and their colleagues in Congress. That shows you how much those executives or senior researchers detest that what that team is working on and the people that are important. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. That is the exact opposite of what you need to do to allow ethical research at your company and to protect marginalized researchers. And Google has not done that to any of its other researchers. Vinesh, I want to take another step back. One of the things that I've been doing in preparation for our podcast is just perusing a bunch of Reddit threads about Dr. Gabru's firing. And a lot of people have mainly been saying, why should we care that this person was fired from Google? And in a way, it's a good question. But I think it's a question that has a really good answer too, is why should the public know what the internal culture at Facebook and Google is? I mean, there's a bunch of other companies out there, smaller companies, larger companies that don't have good cultures. So why does this matter? Why does the firing of one AI ethics leader matter? I'll focus on why it matters to to our community, which is like young civic technologists, both students and early career people. We now need, like we now know exactly what Google stance on ethical AI and marginalized people within the company is. 
And so we need to apply even more skepticism to what Google says and does. It's really difficult for me to say to other students that they shouldn't work at a place like Google because I know how much of an impact it had on me. Like it improved my family's financial situation dramatically. I learned a lot, my confidence went up and it did give me a lot of credibility like we talked about. And when I decided that I was going to leave Google, I started having conversations with lots of the students that I mentor or students that I do championship calls with. A championship call is basically like Google is talking to some student that has an offer and they want to connect them to another young person at Google who can answer their questions and sort of convince them to join. And so I feel really bad because I now going back and talking to these students and saying, hey, if you have any questions or if there's anything you want to talk about, let's talk about it. Every single one of them took me up on that. And every single one of them was deeply conflicted about what Google did to Dr. Gabru and could understand even better what Google did to April. It's so, so difficult because I never want to be part of something that denies someone a life-changing opportunity, financially, socially, professionally. Those are the stakes for some of our classmates. But then for some of us, those aren't the stakes. We can find other work. We can work for other companies. We can work for the public sector. We can work for other organizations. We have other options. And so when that is the situation, now there's not a lot of reason to pick Google. It's hard for me because I applied to over 80 organizations my senior year when I was looking for a job. And Google was actually the only company that, that even gave me an interview. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I got an opportunity that was really meaningful to me. And now I'm really lucky to work at a new organization that is much more civically aligned and that I have a lot of trust in the mission and the team and the culture. And I always ask myself, like, would I have even got the job at this place if I hadn't worked at Google? That's hard. And so the action is for people at other organizations to take, whether you're public sector or private sector, take advantage of, of the way Google is shooting itself in the foot to now create a safe environment for lots of students and young career people that are going to look elsewhere for where they want to do their work and where they want to learn. Then for us, if, if you're a student who recently graduated and is working somewhere, what work can we do to make the environment safer and more beneficial for other students to, to come here? You outlined a number of paradoxes, which is like, we don't reward students who are obviously talented and hardworking engineers just because they don't work at one of these big tech companies. Or we tell young engineers that they need to be able to handle ambiguity, but then we penalize them for asking questions about the technology, its impact, and the organization. So for those of us who are like early in our career, even if we're not managers or senior engineers and certainly not like execs, we can do our part to eliminate those hypocrisies to reward students for doing the things that will make technology more equitable and ethical and remove some of these stigmas. Frankly, like the three of us have a lot more work to do, right? Like we have a lot of privilege, like as white and Asian men, we're the, the majority in tech and we need to take more actions. Like we need to support our classmates. We need to support students and people from non-traditional backgrounds that are trying to come into the field. Even though, like you said, there are sometimes consequences for us 
my observation has been that there have been far less consequences than for my friends who are marginalized that speak up. And so we can take some of those consequences if it means like speaking up to people in our organization that are, are doing bad things or rationalizing bad things, even if they're, they're good people and they support us and we like them. And then using like our place in the organization to make a safer environment for other students. Yeah. And that's a lot of the reasoning why Evan and I made this podcast, because we come from places of privilege, not just in terms of being Asian and white men, but we are already in the door somewhat for civic tech opportunities. And we already know that the world just isn't Silicon Valley. And that's no longer part of our value system or never was part of our value system. I used to be around a lot of people at the University of Illinois where it was Silicon Valley or bust. So that became my value system. And when I learned that it wasn't, that I could go ahead and truly chase down my dream of working in civic technology and using technology on political campaigns to advance the causes that I believe in, that door was not just cracked open, it was wide open for me. And so the reason why we have this podcast is to showcase that these opportunities exist, that it's not just Silicon Valley, that this door can be wide open for you too. I do also ask myself the same thing. Would I have had these opportunities to be a part of Coding It Forward or work at COVID-19 analytics at the Health and Human Services or you know, work on a political campaign if I worked at Facebook? And sometimes I think the answer is yes. And sometimes I think the answer is no. And sometimes you have to use it as a launching pad to say, you know, I'm going to work here for a little bit, but then I'm going to utilize the qualifications that I gain from working in big tech to work on combating societal problems and using the privilege that I have to make our society a better place. And I think that's something that all three of us really share as a common value. Kind of segueing from our values, Vinesh, you really talked about a lot about how you quit Google because of the values that you had. Were these values that you had instilled by working in civic tech? I think definitely. It goes back all throughout school. I've been lucky to be part of like civic tech communities that are critical and constructive about how they think about the impact of technology. So when I was a freshman at IIT, I got involved with Chai Hack Night, which is our civic tech community in Chicago to build and learn about tech for communities and government. And I got to be exposed to so many speakers, so many like volunteer working groups, so many learning groups, breaking down these issues. Then throughout being at IIT, a number of my classmates were also interested in these things. Uh, and so that that's like a crucial piece of, of the culture is like when you have professors or you have classmates that invite you to discuss these issues, teach you new things about those and reward you for working on civic tech as much as the way other colleges reward people for interning at companies like Facebook or Google, that affirms the value set that's necessary to help students feel more confident about going to those areas. Then I just cannot understate the role of coding it forward. That was such an amazing opportunity. I got to work with the Bureau of Labor Statistics and learn so much from the, the civil servants who are in that organization and to do interesting, challenging work with machine learning that serves the public and to dig in and ask questions about the ways that, that the models we developed could cause harm and have the team at the Bureau of Labor Statistics says, yes, thank you for pointing this out. Let's dig into it deeper. What can we do? What would you recommend? Where should we put more resources? Was precisely the opposite of what I experienced at Google. And so not, you know, not everyone gets to have that experience where an organization like coding it forward will break down barriers to entry in the way government currently hires people, create a paid opportunity for you to go work at a federal agency 
work with a team that they've already vetted that they know is good at working with young technologists, cares about the ethical impact and the mission of public service, and then go and, and work on exciting things and be supportive. There's so many things that have to go right to have a good experience. Coding It Forward still has a long way to go in a lot of these areas. Because it's so dependent on these factors, people will have different experiences. But I think what is being done there is, is really awesome because they're, they're creating more opportunities for young people to be paid to do this work and to meet really great mentors in the civic tech space. And at some level, like that's crucial, right? If civic tech is all volunteerism, where only privileged people who can do it for free and can have the free time to do it, go do it, then the value set is not going to be transformative. We're not going to be pushed to live by those values. Like I told you, like I keep observing this thing where people that have less privilege than me speak up louder and earlier and stronger about misuses of technology and misactions inside an organization. I'm getting this in nine different ways, right? Like my school and my friends and my family and Chihack Night and coding it forward and all of these people are like supporting my interest in civic tech, supporting my decisions to, to act on certain values. And I wish way more students would have that support. And I'm already trying to take action so that I can extend that support to more people. You know, I really, I really love this community and like all the civic tech mentors who came before, all the students that support each other it's, it's really crucial. And the actions that we will take since what Google did to Dr. Gebru and to April and what has happened to so many other people at so many other organizations, that's going to be motivation too. Thank you all for listening to our fourth episode of Civ Tech Talks. Special thanks to our guest, Vinesh, for being on the podcast this week. We plan on releasing part two of our conversation with Vinesh next Friday, so please look out for that episode's release on your favorite podcast platform. Please give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at Civ Tech Talks. In addition, the Civ Tech Talks podcast is happy to announce our partnership with Impactful. If you're interested in diving deeper into public interest tech, make sure to visit our friends over at Impactful at weareimpactful.org. With their newsletter, website, and community forums, they're a great platform to find resources and jobs in public interest technology. We've used their site to look for internships, and we love all the conversations sparked in their community threads. Learn more about Impactful at weareimpactful.org. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.